Well, good morning to all of you. It's good to have mics or microphones, something to enhance your voice. Isn't that something? It's amazing what God, uh, when God made man, it's amazing how he made him. You know, you think about even the fall, how uh, the image of God has been radically affected by that. But even in the midst of sin and the curse and all of that, God is still able to produce amazing things through the mind that he gave man. It's so amazing. So we can thank him for that, as Jordan already did, and praise him for that. So welcome, everyone. It's good to see everyone this morning. Last time, we talked about uh, sanctification, and we will finish that today, Lord willing. We talked about uh, two aspects primarily of sanctification. We spoke briefly about the third aspect, but I didn't uh, finish it the way I hoped to do today. So I titled this message, Perfected Sanctification or Glorification, and then some closing remarks. So this, in one sense, is kind of a two-part message today because there's two different types of passages that speak to different things. So bear with me on that. <clears throat> so we talked about sanctification. We talked about initial or positional sanctification, which is the past tense aspect of sanctification. That has already happened. Positional sanctification has already happened. Well, it just didn't happen. God did it. And he did it at the point of regeneration or the new birth. Uh, I know we're using a lot of terms that we don't use every day. So hopefully we can uh, understand uh, what we're saying. And uh, I'll try my best to clarify any um, term that you may not be as familiar with. But uh, sanctification has three different aspects. And uh, the first one is, as I said, positional sanctification, which happened at regeneration or the new birth or at salvation, if you will. All these terms overlap. We're talking about salvation. We're just using different terms to express it. Um, that's what it's all about, salvation. So there's all kinds of terms that we can use, and we're still talking about salvation. It's just the aspects, different aspects of salvation. Salvation is a big uh, concept. And so there's a lot of terms that describe different aspects of it. And so we're dealing with the one called sanctification today. We looked at a verse in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, which talks about uh, the fact that we've already been positionally sanctified. <clears throat> and then in progressive sanctification, that's the present tense. That's where we are now. Positional sanctification didn't go away. It just positioned us to progress in our sanctification. We have to be sanctified before we can progress in sanctification. We have to be saved or we have to be regenerated or born again or have new life, spiritual life, eternal life. And Pastor Tom has been talking about eternal life uh, for months now. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing and it begins at regeneration. And so we progress and the idea of progressive sanctification is to become more like Christ. That is God's ultimate aim for our salvation, is that we become more and more like Christ. That's the way he wants us to become. And as we study God's word and pray and engage in fellowships like this, Sunday school classes, home fellowships, whatever ministry we may engage in, serving in the church, 
evangelizing, and all of those different things, we should be progressively becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's what God wants us to do. Because the more and more we become like Christ, the more effective we will be as servants of Christ and as servants of God. Because our, mind will not, our minds will not be pulled away from the things of God, but being pulled toward God more and more in what God is actually doing in the world. God is accomplishing some great things in the world, and we want to be in alignment with that. And progressive sanctification really helps us to do that because our focus is more on him. And then we move next to what's called future sanctification, which is the future tense of sanctification. That is the ultimate aspect of sanctification. That happens when Christ returns. We will never be perfected, we will never be perfected in our sanctification in this life. We have to wait until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and that is one of the reasons why we can be looking forward to his return. Um, I think in Titus chapter 2, it talks about uh, how we are to be living. And then it also talks about looking, living godly way and so forth. But at the same time, looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the consummation of our salvation or the fulfillment, if you will, of our salvation when we will become like Christ in our moral characters, as well as having a glorified body, where we'll be completely free of sin. Aren't you looking forward to that? That is absolutely amazing. I think more and more about that now as I get older than I used to. And I'm looking forward to thinking about and experiencing what it's like to be without sin. You know, as human beings, we have never in our lives been without sin. We've always had sin in us. Even as believers being saved, we still have remaining sin in us, which will be completely removed when Christ returns at the rapture. And I'm looking forward to that time. It'll be absolutely going to be amazing to think about that. During our time together last Sunday, we talked about positional sanctification, which is what I already mentioned. And I just want to read that verse in Hebrews 10 again, chapter 10. And this is what it says, by this will, that is, from going from the old covenant to the new covenant, we have been sanctified. Notice the tense of the verb, it's past tense. This is positional sanctification. How? Through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. It's all because of the life, the death, well, the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection, even the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all because of his person and his work on our behalf, that we have all these blessings. It's all mediated through Christ. And so that's why we focus so much on him. And one of the things that positional sanctification, one of the things that happened was the ruling power of sin, which dominated our lives completely prior to conversion, was broken. We're no longer slaves of sin. Sin is no longer our master. We owe it no allegiance at all. We don't have to obey it anymore. So at positional sanctification, that happened. We don't have to sin like we once did. We are now saints. We are holy ones. We have been set aside. We've been set apart unto God. We've been consecrated unto him. This is all by grace. There's nothing we did to earn it. There's nothing that we are, 
or that we have, <coughs> excuse me, that we have, <coughs> or what we have done to deserve it. All we can do is praise God, trust in Him, and be obedient to Him. We also discovered that last time that we became, when we became believers, we began to grow in our salvation. We began to grow in our salvation. That is, to become more like Christ and to be less like the world in the way that we were uh, before salvation. 2 Corinthians describes it this way, verse, three, uh, verse 18, you don't have to turn there. Uh, it says this, But we all, that is believers, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And notice what's happening to us. A being transformed, that is, radically changed into the same image from glory to glory, that is, we're increasing in our sanctification, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And then today we'll discuss the future aspect of sanctification, ultimately glorification, which is perfected sanctification, as I mentioned, which will happen when Christ returns. One of the key verses I'd like to look at in this uh, aspect is 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Uh, John puts it this way. Beloved, now we are children of God. Does that arrest your attention? We are children of God now. And it has not yet appeared as to what we will be. We know that when he appears, that is, when Christ appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him just as he is. And, notice this, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, fixed on Christ, does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. That's why we want to be growing. That's, that's growing in sanctification. Purifying ourselves just as Christ is pure. Now, after these exhortations that Paul gave us up to this point, he now <clears throat> prays for the believers. He prays for the believers. He prays to God that God will finish or fulfill what he has purposed to do regarding the reason why he chose us in the first place. Not only to make us his children, but to make us like his son in our moral character, as well as having a glorified body and being completely free of sin. So now he's, he's uh, praying that this will take place. And this is certainly a, a prayer that God will answer <laughs> because it's consistent with his purpose. God will answer this prayer. He can be confident. And we'll talk about that as we go. So Roman numeral one on the outline, and mine may be a little bit different because I have a tendency sometimes to change things because different thoughts come to my mind. A prayer request for the believer's complete sanctification. Those are verses 23 and 24. So let me just read those verses for us. He says, Now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. So this is the request that Paul and his companions, his ministry partners, especially Silas, uh, Silvanus, he calls him, and Timothy uh, prayed for 
the believers in, in Thessalonica, as they do consistently for all believers uh, that Paul, uh, where he planted churches, he prays for the believers. He prays for their spiritual lives primarily. So he's making an appeal here, Paul is, and Timothy and Silas, or Silvanus, to the God of peace. And I think this is fitting because, as you recall, when Paul and his ministry companions were in Thessalonica, what happened to them? What happened to them? They were run out. Why were they run out? I mean make a little discussion out of this myself this morning. Why would they run out? Because of what group? What group of people were hostile to the gospel? The Jews. The Jews were hostile to the gospel, but they noticed that some of the Jews were embracing the gospel, and that made them angry. And not only that, more and more of the non-Jews were embracing the gospel than the Jews were. That made them even more angry. So they kicked them out of the synagogue and they had to go somewhere else, uh, to, to the house of Jason, I believe. And so they kept on, but they didn't stop. And eventually it became unsafe for Paul to be there. And so he left and went to Berea. And so um, he had to leave. So he wasn't there as long as he perhaps had planned to be there because Thessalonica is a huge city. It's a very met metropolitan city, and it, it exists today. In fact, it has basically the same name, Thessaloniki, I think they call it now. And so uh, it's a beautiful place. I saw it on, on, on a picture, in a picture. I hope to go there someday, but it's a very beautiful place, right on the water. So he's referring to him as the God of peace. Now, this is not unusual for Paul. He does it in other places as well. And uh, he does it in Romans chapter 15, verse 33, Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. You don't, obviously, you don't have to turn to all these passages. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, and perhaps other places. These are just some that I wrote down. This is the God that the Thessalonians, those who were part of the church, had come to know. They had been reconciled to God. Reconciliation has to do with peace. You're no longer God's enemy. You're no longer his adversary. You're not, you, you no longer have your weapons up against him and battling against him. You've, laid your, you've disarmed yourself. You've laid your weapons down. And now you were his enemy, but now you were his enemy, but now you're his friend. And he is your friend. And now you can sit at the table with him. He has taken you in. You have peace with him. And reconciliation and peace go together. But God is known as the God of peace. It could also refer to prosperity in every aspect, and especially in the spiritual aspect as we are dealing with here. And notice that Paul is making an appeal to God himself. He emphasizes it. Why do you, God already, he said, made the God of peace, and then he says himself. In other words, God himself. Why do you think he puts an emphasis there like that? That's right. Oh, but say, say, the, say it again. Only God is the one. So we, we, cannot, we cannot even sanctify ourselves no matter how obedient to God's word we are. 
Now that's how we participate. We participate in trusting in God and obeying God, but God, perhaps the Holy Spirit, is the one who actually sanctifies us. He is the one who makes us more and more like Christ. We cannot do that. This is something that happens internally with, within us as we are being obedient and participating in the um, uh, essentials of the Christian faith. God sanctifies us. And so that's how it happens. There's no one else is able to do that. And so Paul is requesting it of the true and the living God. And I want you to also notice, notice how this reads here. Now may the God of peace himself. Is, is, is Paul making a demand on God here? No. Um, I don't want to get into a big discussion on this, but this is in a form that is not in, in, in the mood of a command. It's gentle. You can't demand of God. You can't command him to do anything. That's why it's written like this. May, now may the God of peace. Not I command you God to do this. That is not what he's saying. So he's, uh, he's doing it in the proper way. He's acknowledging that God is, is the great God and he's making an appeal to him. But there are, those, there are some who think that they have the right to demand of God or to command God, but we don't. It's the prayers of privilege that God has given to us. And the, the benefit is that more, and, and to enhance our relationship with him more than, uh, more than always getting something from him. He wants us to be dependent upon him and show that dependency through prayer. And that also strengthens and enhances our relationship with him in terms of strengthening our faith. We are trusting in him. We're learning more about who he is. And as a result of that, our faith is strengthened as well. And we're also growing in our sanctification process. <clears throat> so the question is this. What is Paul asking for? What is he gently asking for? Notice what he says. May the God of peace himself sanctify you, what? Entirely. So this is another reason I believe that this will happen at a future time as opposed to happening in this life. Because we cannot be perfected in sanctification in this life. Why do you think that's the case? Because there's still what in us? Sin. sin. There's still sin in us, and there will be sin in us until we, we die or we are raptured, one or the other, whichever comes first. So that's what he's requesting. He's looking forward to the time when we will be completely rid of sin and we will be like Christ. Now, God intended that to happen. In fact, we read in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, last Sunday, where it talks about election. And he chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him. So God has already promised this. So why do you think Paul is praying? Huh? He's, yeah, he is. He's hoping for that time to come. But, you know, that's a good thing to pray is God's promise. Because why? We're certain of the answer, right? If God promised it, we're certain of the answer. And that's the way we want to be praying. In fact, uh, 
I think Pastor Tom may have talked about this recently in 1 John because we have the request that we ask for because we're praying according to what? His will. When we're praying according to God's will, we can be satisfied with that prayer. We don't know how God will answer or when he will answer, but he answers the prayers that are consistent with his will because he's determined that that's going to happen. And we'll get to it, to it in a minute, but God is a faithful God, which he always fulfills his promises as well as his purposes. Uh, I'd like for us to look at a passage. Um, you can take out your, up your Bibles now. And just look at Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. I just want to read that. I'm not going to comment, it, comment that much on it, but... This is consistent, I think, with, with God's purpose. It is consistent with his purpose. And in some circles, this is called the golden chain of salvation. But you don't have to worry about that. But uh, here's one of our favorite verses. And I just want to point out at the beginning that this verse is in the context of sanctification or glorification. It actually sanctification. Notice verse 28. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, that is, those whom he determined to have a relationship with, this is what he did. He predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he, that is his son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now the word firstborn here refers to the preeminent place or the preeminent position or have preeminence among us. And these whom he predestined, he also called. That's how salvation is actually initiated. God calls us. This is called the effective or effectual call where we see God calling us, we see our condition, and we see the only rescue from that condition, and so we respond by God's enabling grace. And these whom he called, he also justified. In other words, made us right with himself, made us, put us in the right standing before himself. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is where it's actually going. It's going toward glorification. Now, there's a lot of things that happen in our lives. And God causes all those things, if we're a believer, if we have been called according to his purpose, and if we love him, that is, we belong to him, he causes all things to, all those things to work together for good. Just like the delay in Michelle's surgery. He causes all those to work for good. And it seems like she understands that. It must be for a purpose. He causes all those things to work for good. And this is uh, like God's providence. And one of the things I learned in Genesis, especially as related to Joseph and even others, other characters we studied, Joseph went through many different trials and difficulties and challenges. So did his, an uh, his ancestors. But one thing I learned about Joseph especially was that Joseph tended to accept God's providence. All of those things that he endured were God's providence, and he, it worked out well for him. So as long as we know that 
these things that we are enduring, even though they may be contrary to what we would desire, if we look at them in the right way, God is causing them to work for our good, for our benefit. Because he knows what we need in order to cause us to be what he wants us to be. And so therefore, and we know that he's good always, so we're less frustrated, we're less miserable when we can accept his providence. And I think this is part of that. Now, letter B in your outline, he elaborates on this, salv- this sanctification in terms of its entirety. And I may have to discuss this a little bit. And he continues in 20, letter, uh, uh, verse 23b, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was studying this, I looked in Leon Morris's commentary on this. And um, he, uh, I think he had a good comment regarding the aspect of this sanctification or the extent or the scope of this sanctification. This is what he said. He says, in different ways, Paul emphasizes that sanctification applies to the whole of our person and is not to be restricted to any segment. And the reason I, this caught my attention was because, um, and I'm just going to mention this a little bit briefly here, and I don't want to drag it out, uh, is that some people use this verse to teach that man is a three-part being. That he's a spirit, he has spirit, soul, and body. But I don't believe that th- that verse is teaching that. This verse is teaching that. I think it's just referring to the scope of the sanctification. In other words, every aspect of his being, of his person, sanctification should reach that. And I did want to comment just a little bit. It says, I want to look at verse 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now notice here it says spirit, soul, and body. Before I do that, I want to look at body. It's interesting that he mentions body as well. Because the reason I say that is because during that time, there was a concept called philosophical dualism. That's, that's uh, fancy terms for just saying that matter was evil and spirit was good. Your body is what? Matter, right? And then your soul or spirit is spirit. So there's two different aspects of a person, uh, immaterial as well as material. But God believes in our bodies. God has a future for our bodies. Even though we're aging, as uh, I look around the room, some of us are in here, we're aging and getting weaker and um, getting close to uh, three score and 10 and a little bit more and so forth. And uh, our body is decaying, you know, and what is it, Second uh, Corinthians 4, it talks about uh, how our body is decaying. But the good news in that verse, though, is that our inner man is being renewed day by day. So that's the good news about that. 
but it's getting older. So, but anyway, so it's decaying, but God still has a purpose for our bodies. God made us with a body. He formed us from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, and man was energized. He became a living being. So your body is good. Your body is good. And it will get better <laughs> in time, as time goes on when Christ returns. So don't, don't, don't buy into that dualism of the philosophers. They treated it as a, like a tomb or a prison for the spirit. Like you want to escape from this. You don't want this. But that's not true in God's economy. So now I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and pay careful attention as I read it and then compare and contrast it with the verse that we just read. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse, beginning in verse 32, notice what he says. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. Now listen to this. That she may be holy both in body and spirit. What did you notice that was different about this verse than the one we read earlier? What does, he, what, what does he leave out? He doesn't mention soul. So now, are we going back and forth from a three-part being to a two-part being? No, I don't think so, because that's not what he's teaching. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Thank you, honey, that you're concerned about that. I don't think she got it. But anyway, I don't think that that verse is teaching that man is a three-part being at all. I wrote down many verses, which I obviously won't read, that I do have, that treat soul and spirit. Sometimes it talks about spirit, and sometimes it talks about soul. They are interchangeably used in many cases. So I just wanted to point that out. So before I leave this, this point here, I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you prayed for the sanctification of someone? You don't have to answer. I just want you to think about that. Paul was always praying for the sanctification of his converts. They weren't his necessarily, but he was the one who shared the gospel with them. He was always praying for them. Is it something that crosses your mind? Do you think about praying for the sanctification of someone? I hope that after today, you will include sanctification for others in your prayers. One of the things that I've been, think, been doing of late, especially, is that if someone is a believer, a professed believer, and I'm seeing them perhaps behaving in a manner that's inconsistent with their profession, 
I started praying for them, that God would call, call it to their attention and that they may live in a different manner. So we want to be praying for the sanctification of fellow believers. So let's go to Roman numeral two. The believer's complete confidence that this prayer, that is the prayer, the prayer that Paul prayed, will be answered. Why? Notice what the verse says. This is verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. What an amazing verse. God is a faithful God. Faithfulness is built into, I don't know what I'm saying that, I should say that like that, the fabric of his very being. That's who he is. God is a faithful God. There are many verses that talk about that. That's one of his characteristics. That's one of his attributes. God is faithful. And he will fulfill whatever he has promised to do. That's why he's trustworthy. We trust God because he's trustworthy, implying that he's a faithful God. We don't have to be concerned about what God says in terms of whether he will make good on it or not, because he always will. God is immutable, implying that he will never change. He doesn't change, and not only that, he's not even subject to change. And he is faithful, which means he will remain faithful. He's always been faithful, he is faithful, and he always will be faithful, which means that we can put our whole-hearted trust and confidence in his word, what he says, because he will bring it to pass. I love this verse in um, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Turn over there for a moment. Numbers chapter 23. I'm not sure I put it in your notes. Verse 19. Numbers 23, 19. This is a very encouraging verse to me. And uh, I read it, uh, uh, I wouldn't say often, but occasionally, just to remind myself of the faithfulness of God. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. And he asked the question now, has he said and will not do it? Or has he spoken and will not make it good? How would you answer those two questions? No, no, emphatic no. He has not said and will not make it good. He will make it good. Or he has not spoken and he will not make it good. He will make it good. He will do what he said. So he's reliable. You can trust him. So that applies in this context. God will fulfill his promise regarding perfecting sanctification in us at the return of Christ. We may have to go through difficulties. We may have to suffer. And we will. Sometimes sin seems like it's overwhelming. But one day, we will be rid of it. It will no longer affect us. Not only, will, not only is it the penalty of our sin been paid, the power of sin has been broken in our lives, and then the very presence of sin will be a thing of the past with us. We will no longer encounter it again. 
This is good news. We will no longer encounter sin ever again. From his power, from his penalty, his presence, and his power, and even the possibility of sin will not exist. And we can have confidence in that because of the faithfulness of God, the character of God. The God who is faithful is the one who calls us. Literally says, faithful the caller. The word actually God is not in this verse. Faithful the caller, but we know that God is the one who calls. And he also will do it. Look at letter B. God will, is the one who will complete our sanctification. Because he is the one who will do it. Even when we are not faithful, I think it's 2 Timothy uh, 2.13. Even when we are not faithful, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. God cannot deny himself, and he is faithful. Therefore, he has to be faithful whether we are faithful or not, or anyone else is faithful. God remains faithful. It would be a denial of his very nature, his very being, which he cannot do. And I read this verse last time, I think, but I want to read it again. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Let's turn over that verse and just look at it together. This is an amazing verse, and I want us to see it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I think it applies in this context. He says, for I am confident of this very thing, or this one thing, or this, this. I'm, I'm confident of it. I'm persuaded of this. That is the content of what he's persuaded of. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Who is the he here? God. God himself. He is the one who began the good work in us. Because he is the caller. He's the one who calls us. And then he's the one who enables us by the Spirit of God producing new life in us, spiritual life, to respond in saving faith and repentance to that call. He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So it will happen. We can be confident. We can be as confident as Paul was. We can be completely persuaded as he was that God will do this because of his very nature, his character, his attribute. He is faithful to what he has promised to do and what he is committed to do. He will bring it to pass. So we have finished those two verses. So maybe I'll just stop here and just ask a, a question. Do you have any questions on this? How confident are you that you will share in Christ's glory someday? Because of what? Because of what he's done and his, God's faithfulness to do it. He will bring it about. He, is, he himself will do it. 
Any other question? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And it's to God's character. That's, that's why we rely up on him and we put our confidence in him. And I, again, that verse in Numbers, God is not a man. We can be a little swim, whims, swim, <laughs> whimsical or wishy-washy at times, but God is not that way. He's not that way. Yeah, the storm came. Yes. Any other comment or question? Very good. We will move on then because I want to just transition. We're transitioning to some concluding matters. We're finishing up first. Thessalonians, and it's been a wonderful study so far. In Roman numeral 3, I call it some concluding matters, verses 25 through 28. And then underneath that, he talks about, about four different, different things. Uh, a, Paul requests prayer from the brethren. You, do you find that amazing? Paul requests prayer from the brethren, which is a custom of his. Of, that's, that was his custom. He asked different churches when he wrote letters to pray for him. In fact, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, I'm already there. You, we may be there too if you didn't turn from Philippians chapter 1. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says, with all prayer, he's talking about the armor of God and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Yes, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 18. I'll wait until we get there. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Again, he's encouraging us to pray for the saints. And notice verse 19. And pray on my behalf. For what? That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an, an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So he's requesting prayer there and he's requesting prayer here from the saints. And again I uh, appeal to Leon Morris because when I read this I also thought about this and I thought this was really wonderful that he wrote. And this is what he says. It's a little lengthy, but bear with me. It is easy to picture for ourselves Paul as a very great apostle, ceaselessly occupied with his work 
of issuing directives to other people on how they should live out their faith. While he himself sits above the storm or calmly proceeds along on his undisturbed way. It's easy to get a picture of that like that because we know so much about Paul and all of the ministry that he was engaged in. God showed him much grace and enabled him to proclaim the gospel in very difficult situations. Such, of course, is far from being a true picture. Paul was very much caught up in the hurly-burly. I don't know what that means. In the hurly-burly, you probably do. He found himself in situations where he did not know how to act. Are you, are you surprised by that? Let me read on. Sometimes when he did act, he was not at all sure that he had done the right thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, for example, he says that he wrote a letter that he came to regret. You may remember when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, uh, he'd already written what's called a hard letter, where he'd kind of blasted the uh, Corinthians because of their lifestyle, and also they were accepting false teaching and false apostles and so forth. And then, but later, he did not regret it. At first he said he regretted it, and then he said he didn't regret it. He changed his mind twice. This is Apostle Paul. You can read that. It's, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. You can read it uh, later. He was conscious of his own limitations. You may recall in uh, uh, Philippians how he talked about, I have not attained, but I press on. Paul was, he didn't consider himself in any means as being perfect. He was conscious of his own limitations and knew that, he only, that his only hope was in God. He knew that he needed their prayers just as much as they needed his. And he asked for it. When he asked them to pray for him, he didn't just mean pray one time. The verb that he's using here is a present tense verb. Ongoing, continue to pray for me. As, as you, as you uh, remember from the beginning of this letter, Paul talked about how often he and his companions prayed for them. So pray for me the same way. Continue to pray for me. Because I need your prayers. Now, that bids another question. How often do you pray for the church leaders? Let me be personal with this. How often do you pray for Pastor Tom? You don't have to answer. How often do you pray for him? Can you imagine his workload? He's a man just like we are. He too is a man. He has a family. He has a wife who is not in the best of health. She's in reasonably good health. He's a busy man. So I hope that after today... We will pray more for him and the other ministry leaders in, in this church and in all churches, as um, Jordan prayed earlier. So let's pray for our leaders. They need it. And then the second thing, an affectionate greeting to all the brethren, verse 26. So let me read verse 26. He says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I wrote in my Bible 
in Romans, at the end of Romans, it says the holy kiss. It's like love for family, affection for really close friends. And do it always in a, in a holy way. It's always holy. Love one another in such a way that is reserved for family and close friends. A holy kiss. Maybe it's a handshake or an affectionate hug, but in the right way. As long as it's done in the right way. Letter C, verse 27. Let's go back now to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5, verse 27. He says, I adjure you, in other words, he's commanding and putting them under oath by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. He's using the word brethren again. In fact, he used the word brethren three times in verses 25 through 27. That's one of his favorite words, uh, terms, especially in this letter as well as 2 Thessalonians. He's using the word brethren here again. I put you on the oath by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. So he may have been referring to the church leaders here. There were leaders in this church in chapter, um, is it chapter 3 or chapter 4? There were leaders in the church because he talked about how to treat them and how to acknowledge them. Five verse 12, okay. Five verse 12, that's correct. Thank you, sir. He says, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. In other words, these are the leaders who are laboring among them. They're not, known, they're not called elders or overseers or pastors even and have charge over you and the Lord to give you instruction. This seems like somebody who's in charge, right? Sounds like anyway. And that you esteem them or know them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So he may have been referring mostly to them. So he wanted this letter read. Why do you think he wanted it read? So all to hear. What was the source of this letter? God. God himself. So this is the word of God, and he wanted them to hear what the word of God says. And not only that, how many copies do you think they may have had? Probably one, maybe, maybe one. So it had to be read, read aloud. And that's, some, that's a custom, that was a custom among the Jews and also in Paul's day as well, where he commanded Timothy to read the scriptures among the people in Ephesus as well so that they could hear the word of God. All right. Yes, sir. Yes. It was sometimes you read some part of the Bible where they stood for the third part of or half a day. They stood for a long time. Yeah. And it would start squirming ten minutes. It could happen. Yeah. I think it's in Nehemiah, maybe chapter eight. I didn't write it down, but they stood for quite some time. Yeah. I think it was on the day of uh 
trumpets. They stood for quite some time when Ezra was reading. Letter D, the concluding blessings of the Lord's grace to be with the brethren. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And Paul basically concludes many of his letters this way. Because grace is enabling, it's empowering, it provides endurance, it enables us to stand in the midst of challenges and difficulties. And they were certainly having difficult times in Thessalonica. They were still being persecuted. And God, I mean, Paul knew that they needed the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ or the grace of God in order to remain faithful, in order to continue in the sanctification process that they had embarked upon to continue to love one another and continue to excel even more and so forth. So he commends God's grace to them. And that's something we can do as well. We can pray God's grace to be with fellow believers even among us, even among people in this class, people in the church and and CBC and other believers that are outside of this church, North Lake Bible Church, that God's grace will continue with them Because when we live in a fallen world like we do, there will be many challenges. We need grace. We need God's grace to be with us, to enable us even to understand his word as we read it and to um, muse over it, to meditate in it, and to understand it, to, to know how we are to be walking or how we are to be behaving in any particular situation that we might be in. We need the grace of wisdom. We need the grace of discernment. Grace is multifaceted. It's multicolored. It's variegated. That is, different aspects of it. And we need those different aspects in different circumstances. One of the things I pray for as I'm going to work, I work at a middle school, a sixth grade school, and one of the things I pray for is that God will give me wisdom, the grace of wisdom and discernment in order to know how to behave in relating to different people on campus, the staff, the principal, and so forth, even at different levels, and even the students, that I may treat them properly. I may treat them the way that God would have me to treat them. We need grace to do that. So, in closing, I want to just read two verses. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a joy it is to come together in a setting like this to fellowship with fellow believers, those whom you have purchased by the blood of your own son, those whom you have redeemed, those whom you have made your own, and to be built up in the faith. Father, what a joy it is to fellowship around your word, the truth. We thank you for the truth that you've given us in your word. And even that is your gift of grace to us. We thank you for it. And Father, may we be diligent students of it, that we may be learning more and more about you and more and more about how you want us to live in a manner that's consistent with your character, your holiness, that we may be growing more and more in the likeness of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, I pray for each person here. I pray that your grace will be upon them. Whatever aspect of grace that may be the most needed or urgent in their lives, even today, Father, you're the God of all grace. May you provide it to them and for them. Do it for the sake of Christ. Do it for the glory of Christ and for his name's sake. So we commend each person to hear and here today to you for your glory and to your grace. And we pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.